Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Conversations podcast. I'm Dr Louise Tuckwell, a senior CMO working in two southern regional hospitals. The aim of this podcast is to review emergency topics with a rural and regional perspective. The opinions expressed of a general education encourage everyone to check their local guidelines and those of the New South Wales Emergency Care Institute. Before we begin today's podcast on neonatal resuscitation, I would like to let you know about another new podcast called Doctors Debrief. It aims to look at issues related to stresses faced by doctors and how to effectively debrief and manage these. I also speak to a number of inspirational doctors about how they manage working in our challenging profession. It can be found on Apple iTunes and the Podbean podcast app. I'm fortunate to have with me again today Dr. Catherine Lachesse, consultant paediatrician working in southern New South Wales. So thanks for joining me today, Catherine. Hi, oh, thanks for having me, Louise. All right, we'll begin with a case. You are the sole doctor in a rural emergency department that has no obstetric unit. A 35-year-old mm-hmm. woman who is a G5P4 presents to your department in labour as she doesn't think she'll make it to the maternity unit, which is 45 minutes away. There is a neonatal resuscitator in your department. So, Catherine, in the time we have briefly to prepare for the delivery of this baby, what should we be doing? Well, I think the most important thing is to gather a team, make sure if there are any neonatal NALS trained nurses or NALS trained doctors around to have them with you and to have a bit of a chat about what's going to happen. Now you've got your resuscitator, so you want to make sure that that is prepared. Now, if you have absolutely no time, the six steps you need to do are to switch the power and heater on. I've made the mistake of forgetting to do that. So making sure that heater is nice and warm because every degree for the baby is actually does make a very, very big difference on outcome. So keeping them warm is important. Getting the mask ready. So uh, making sure you have three sizes available. Usually the 52 millimeter will fit most from babies. And then the others are your 40 and your 65. So the one smaller and one larger. Then the other thing is to make sure, to then check your resuscitator. So the first step would be to check your mask and check your, put your gas flow on at 10 liters per minute if you're hooked up to the wall. If you're running on a tank, you can put it to eight liters a minute, just making sure you're getting the good settings of 30 on five when you do check your peep and your pip. Remember that a tank running at 10 or eight liters a minute only has 10 minutes of oxygen. So that can go by really, really quickly. So if you're hooked, if you're on a tank, eight liters a minute. If you're hooked to the wall, 10 liters a minute. So your PEEP, your peak end expiratory pressure, you want it to be at five. And you do that by holding your mask and including the inside and checking on your resuscitator. There should be a pressure indicator. And then your PIP, so your peak inspiratory pressure is your top pressure. And so you'll want, you'll have to include both sides of your mask for your TPs. And that should go up to 30. Now, if you're anticipating a prem delivery, you can start at 25. The next thing that is often used in resuscitation, so you need to check it's working, is your suction. And you need to make sure it's below 100 millimeters of mercury. Usually an eight French catheter is uh, used. And just check your catheter. Make sure if it is one of the ones that you have to include to get suction, make sure you include it if you need to use it for suction. So just be familiar with what you have. Some of them don't need to be included. Always check you have backup. So use your check. Make sure there's a self-inflating bag available with the proper size mask. And then check to see that you do have, if required, intubation equipment. So a 3.5 ET tube is usually what you would use for a term baby. Obviously, it'd be helpful if you had a 3.0 and a 4.0, so one on either side, a size zero Miller blade with a working light. So that's your really quick check. 
If you've got a bit more time, you do all of those things. Plus, make sure you've got an SpO2 monitor with probing coban. Check your drawers, your ET tube alternate airway, so an LMA size zero. Those are the, definitely if you're not comfortable with intubation, size zero LMA is just as adequate and a life-saving alternate airway. A MEC aspirator, although we don't routinely suction MEC anymore in a child that may need it, it is important to have. Uh, different sizes, suction catheter, different sizes, Miller blades, so a double zero or one if you need and checking there's a working battery. CO2 detector, very important. NG tube and syringe if needed, and of course, medicine. So your adrenaline one in 10,000. If there is a UVC kit, making sure someone's getting it. IO needles, blood gas syringes, uh, drawing up needles, and of course your D10 dextrose because that's what we use for fluids and babies. Also, if you're able to, making sure you've got you know the algorithms up, you know, making sure that everyone kind of has a good look at the algorithms and making sure they're visible so everyone's available and remembering to kind of talk about pressing the APGAR monitor. And, and then if you can get a bit of information, is this a term baby, any complications, could we be anticipating twins? And if there's any history of MEC or risk factors for sepsis, if you have time, that's what you can do. But obviously in these situations, everything's a bit hectic sometimes. Oh, thank you. That's an excellent overview. And I think it just really speaks volume to the fact that if you're ever going to be in a position to possibly need to resuscitate a baby, that you need to be familiar with that equipment and have had a look at it prior and know how it works. Because as extensive as that sounded, actually, if you do have some familiarity, some of that doesn't actually take that long and it's very important so but you need to have thought about it beforehand and be familiar with that so that's that's great now in this hypothetical case within several minutes the head is on view and the baby is delivered so I thought um, you know, as you suggested, there's the flow chart, which is the Australian Resuscitation Council flow chart for neonatal resuscitation. And we'll just work through the stages of that flow chart. Now, it has a big strip down the side in big bold letters saying at all stages, ask, do you need help? So that's important, as you mentioned previously. Now, it starts off at the top with a few questions. One is the baby term. Secondly, is it breathing or crying? And thirdly, has it got good tone? Now, if we consider the first question regarding the baby's term, mm. do you mind just commenting on how, you know, we might get some idea of this if we don't know the gestation? Yeah, so there are, so when the baby's, I mean, you can always ask the mum, but obviously in this case, she doesn't know. Um, you could try and get some dates around maybe a period. But once the baby's born, you know, if there is a lot of, you know, the size, so very small baby, you could assume is premature. Um, and of course, if there's lots of vernix, that's more premature babies. The kind of old looking, lots of wrinkles, bigger babies could be older. But really, the only way this really affects your resuscitation is if you suspect the baby is premature, like 32 weeks and under, that's when it's going to affect because you really need to put that baby in a clear bag, obviously not the head. And not to wipe them down, but to slip them right into a clear plastic bag to ink and put them under the warmer to increase their warmth and minimize uh, their fluid loss. So that's the main difference between resuscitating a term baby and a prem baby. So if you can just remember, oh, this baby looks small, maybe I think maybe it's under 32 weeks, let's pop it in a plastic bag and put a cap on its head, like a regular cap. 
then then you you're one step ahead of the game and that's really the biggest difference of course there are some more subtle differences so you can start on you know 25% or 30% oxygen whereas in term babies start generally in room air with resuscitation and if you do you can start at lower pressures so 25 on 5 but there's no harm in starting in room air in a prem baby and there's no and some people actually do start at 30 on 5 with their pressure so if you can the biggest thing is to put them in the plastic bag if you suspect they're prem or under 32 weeks okay oh no that's a really good branch point there isn't it and then you're saying so for normally we would start on an fio2 of 21 percent, which is room air for babies and in some cases with premature babies you might give them between 25 and 30% FIO2. Is that correct? To start with. That's correct. Okay. But right. generally, you know, starting on room air for everyone is fine. It's a good place to start as well. That's okay. Right. Oh, no, that's good to know. Now, thinking about that and the baby's breathing, how do we assess if the bathing baby is breathing adequately? Okay. So there's a few things to look at. One, obviously, if they're crying and pink, well, that's a good sign. And it is, you know, the, it is um, very similar to children and adults. If you want to just keep it nice and simple, if there's lots of work of breathing, you can suspect that they are having some trouble breathing. In babies, it starts from the tummy and moves upwards. So if they're having subcostal recessions, that's, you know, minimal intercostal recessions, moving up to tracheal tug, substernal cloido, and then nasal flaring being the last sign. Tracheal tug is really hard to see in these babies because they've got like the chubby neck and the chub chub. So I tend not to rely on that too much, but if you've got some nasal flaring with tachypnea, then you this baby likely might need will need some support, whether that's just a bit of CPAP to, to start with. However, so in a baby like that, I might just start with a bit of CPAP to see if that will help them get those big breaths in and the pressures out to get the fluids out of the lung, which may in and of itself turn them around. Now, the other thing in these babies, if they're having apneic episodes or not work and there's then that's definitely an issue and a grunting. So grunting in babies can be difficult to hear if you to identify if you've never really heard it before, but it's like a <laughs> so they are breathing, but it's ineffective breathing, and this baby will need IPPV. And of course, uh, any you know non-sustained breathing that would need support. And if you have persistent cyanosis in a child with these signs, then by you know you should be thinking about putting a SAP monitor on and looking at their saturations. The thing with babies is they have a very compliant chest wall, but there is like their fluid, their alveoli are filled with fluid, so they really need a good big breath in the first few seconds of life to initiate the transition into extra utero life. So if they don't take that breath, they will need your support to do it. One thing I just did want to mention, the apneas and the rapid breathing and regular gasping, like we mentioned, are this is where it's a bit different than adults and children. So in back in the day, they did some tests with rhesus monkeys where they were trying to find out the the really clear, clear sequence of events in response to hypoxia. And they found that when they drowned these monkeys, these baby monkeys, that they would have a sequence of rapid breathing, a primary apnea, then irregular gasping, then a secondary apnea, and then cardiac arrest. So the rapid breathing, so if a baby's born with rapid breathing or irregular gasping, we're not sure where they are in that kind of sequence. So we really, and then the primary apnea or the secondary apnea. So 
any baby who's apneic, we need to assume they're in secondary apnea and initiate IPPV immediately. Any baby who has irregular gasping, or we need to assume they're in that latter phase and really support them to prevent any deterioration. And generally, the good thing is babies often respond really well. So, you know, in the majority of cases of babies who come out with either rapid breathing, primary apnea, irregular gasping, or or other, they do respond to initial uh, interventions. And so generally they'll turn around quite quickly, which is fantastic. And then of course, the other thing that which is on the algorithm, which reflects the effectiveness of their respiration is their heart rate. So if a heart rate is above 100, you're in a good spot. If it's below 100, then we need to address their ventilation. Yes, I agree. I think it's really worthwhile being aware of that primary and secondary apnea. I found that quite useful just thinking about resuscitation and and understanding, well, look, you know, we definitely need to do something. And if the baby is in that primary, it'll, you know, it'll pink up and it'll be going well. And if it's could be in that second phase or the secondary apnea, um, we might, you know, we have to be prepared to do more. And also the fact that if it's been a really sort of, you know, concerning lead up to the delivery, you have to be thinking yeah. that this baby might be in that secondary apnea when it comes out, there being lots of braddies and D cells and things. So Definitely. I think it's a good way of thinking about it. And and you're right, it just also takes us on this branch point. So we sort of get to the point where we ask those sort of questions about the gestation and crying and tone and whatnot. And as you mentioned, if it's got labored breathing or cyanosis, we might be thinking about CPAP, but if the heart rate's below 100 or it's gasping or apnea, that's when we then proceed down the algorithm and mm-hmm. provide the positive pressure ventilation with the, the SAT monitoring, as you mentioned. So I think um, that's, you know, that's very useful. Now, in terms of PPV, you did kindly go through before how we set the the PEEP and the PIP on the Neopuff, which seems to be the common, you know, ventilation support that we have. Now, and the settings were 5 and 30 for a term or 5 of PEEP and and 25 of PIP for a PREM. I mean, I do know that there's also videos, if people, it's a bit hard to explain in a podcast, but you can have a little look at videos of of how to set those. And also the midwives, if you're in a hospital, all know how to um, set those up as well. So it's it's useful going through that. Now, and the rationale behind using positive pressure ventilation, obviously if they're apneic or gasping, that's quite clear. But if the heart rate's below 100, what's what's the rationale there, Catherine? So if the heart rate is below 100, so the... The heart rate is a reflection of your circulating oxygen levels. So if we're having a dropping heart rate, and for babies, we need between 60 and 100 is mediocre, then that is a reflection of their ability to ventilate and oxygenate. And we need to support them doing that. And again, starting at room air, because they're not ventilating because they have fluid-filled sacs. So we need to push that fluid out of the lungs, get the ventilation and the oxygenation initiated. And once that kind of circulating oxygen level rises, then our heart rate should improve. Obviously, at this point, there should definitely be a SAT monitor in place. And and we should be targeting SATs to their appropriate age in life. And as you know, that uh, little box is on the the flow chart and it will tell you what SpO2 we target after life. And, And generally, that's put again on the right arm or hand, sorry. So that would be the rationale between that. And obviously, we want to 
ensure that we're doing adequate ventilation. So one thing I just want to mention is before we go down this route of using CPAP, IPPV and more, you know, more, more steps, we do need to kind of really ensure that we have the baby in a proper position because the first step would be really opening the airway and the mouth and stimulating the baby, you know, warm, dry, stimulate, and then put the babe's head in a neutral position because Sometimes in the excitement, we do tend to either hyperextend or overflex the baby's head and, and that itself can cause obstruction and work of breathing. So if the baby's in a funny, really, really identifying, you know, prior to starting CPAP that we have the baby in a neutral position, suction the mouth and the nose, and that all those things are good. And then initiating IPPV and, and of course, rechecking those things over and over again as we go down the pathway. Yes, that's right. So really it's a bit of a, for adult physicians, a bit of a mind shift change to really the heart rate's reflecting the you know adequate ventilation and that's what we really need to address early on and as you say I think that positioning is really important now the one thing the algorithm doesn't really say is what rate we should be ventilating at what mm. do you recommend there uh look um recommendations are 40 to 60 breaths per minute I try to just remember 60 breaths per minute, but ensuring that when you're doing it, you have good time, you give enough time for the baby to exhale. So my kind of a mantra, I guess, if I'm doing IPPV is breathe, baby, breathe, baby, breathe, baby, breathe, baby. And that helps me keep in check my rate because we don't want to go too fast, but we also don't want to go too slow because babies do have a higher ventilation rate. Okay. That's great. And just to, to summarize again, so if we're giving the assisted ventilation, we're either using a T-piece, which is the Neopuff is one form That's of that, right. or a, a BV bag valve mask. Mm-hmm. Now, if we were more familiar or only had a bag valve mask with a PEEP valve, we just set that as five, similarly to on the Neopuff. Okay, yeah. great. All right. So for this case, a minute has now gone by and and we're checking the heart rate again to see how we're going because we did need to ventilate this baby. If it's still below 100, there are a number of things we need to check. Now, there is a mnemonic that's not part of the flow chart, but it's quite commonly known and I think quite useful. And it's the Mr. Sopa. M-R-S-O-P-A. And do you mind, Catherine, just you mentioned some of these, but just commenting on the components of this. Yeah. So Mr. Sofa is really important. Once we've started IPPV or CPAP, whatever we've done, we should always ensure that we have someone check the ventilation. So either looking for a chest rise or having someone auscultate to ensure that we're having equal air entry bilaterally. If that's not the case, our heart rate's not rising and we're not having effective ventilation on checking, then we do need to go through Mr. Sofa. And you can, you don't have to do each step individually. You can, you know, group them, which makes it a bit easier. But so M is for mask. So repositioning your mask. R is for reposition and that's repositioning the baby. And as I mentioned before, we really want to maintain a neutral position for the baby. And sometimes you can uh, help that by putting a little shoulder roll, like, you know, just using a face cloth and rolling on that and putting it under the shoulders, but ensuring that the head is neither hyper overextended or hyperflexed. And again, it's a bit difficult to describe, but I would recommend, you know, checking out some videos on YouTube and looking at that because that's very, very important. And with the mask, sometimes, you know, these babies are quite wet and slippery. And something I've found that is really helpful with mask reposition and baby reposition is, you know, you always want to hold your mask with a C, with that C kind of cut hold. So your fingers on the, on the, on the mask and your, your, sorry, your thumb and your index finger 
I think that's what it's called, on the, on the mask and the other three fingers just on the jaw. If you are not getting a good seal, having someone else come in and you use both hands, so you hold a C hold on both sides, fingers on the jaw, ensuring you're not over the trachea and you're the one obstructing their airway, which has happened. And then you get a better seal and someone else is in control of the respirations on the T-piece. That has saved me many, many times. And so that's something I do when I find I'm not getting a good seal with my mask and is has been very, very helpful. Where are we? We did R, reposition baby. So we're in a nice neutral position. S is suction. So often, anytime I take my mask off, I'll suction. You always suction the mouth first and then the nose because you don't want to suction the nose and then they do a big inhale and, and then they inhale the stuff in their mouth. Mr. So is open the mouth. So you really want to open that mouth. Often when we put our mask on, we tend to close the mouth, like, or the mouth will close once the mask is on, which is <laughs> counter, you know, counterproductive. So really making sure that the mouth is nice and open. When you put your mask on, putting it on the chin first, keeping that mouth open, and then slowly dropping it down onto the bridge of the nose and, 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 and really making sure it's a nice, nice fit and that the mask itself isn't too big or too small. Mr. Soap. So P, pressure. <laughs> Pressure. So if all of those things are good, you've checked them and you're still not getting a bilateral air entry, then you can increase your pressure. So going up to 35, or if you started on 25, going up to 30 and then reassessing. Now, remember, if you're changing your peak inspiratory pressure or your PEEP, you have to take the mask off the baby and double check it again and do, do those pressure changes off the baby because you don't want to do it on the baby and then pop a new mouth. And ah, alternate airways. And this is where your LMA or your ET tube is handy. You've already checked, you've got all your stuff. So you've done all these things and things aren't improving. Remember that it does take time to do all these steps. And you really, really, really want to make sure that your ventilation is good before you start jumping on their chest and, or anything like that, because the ventilation itself can turn everything around in nine, in mo in like almost hundred percent of the cases, you know, bar any kind of cardiac arrhythmia, hypovolemia situation. So really, 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 we really want to focus on our ventilation. And in certain cases, you need an ET tube or an LMA for that. Oh, that's that's great, Catherine. And I think if you do all those things and you decide that you have the skills to go about intubating the baby, because it's not very frequent, sometimes it's good just to have a quick, you know, mental prompt as to what sizes of equipment and yeah. things you use. What do you tend to try to remember? So trying to keep it as simple as possible. Any baby over two kilos or over 34 weeks, which will be the majority of the babies, 3.5 and nine centimeters at the lip, nine or 10 centimeters at the lip. So 3.5 tube, nine to 10 centimeters at the lip, generally nine is good for most babies. Now, any baby that you think is preterm, like under 34 weeks, so maybe two kilos, 3.0 to eight centimeters at the lip. And any baby, very small, so one kilo looking baby, so less than 28 weeks, a 2.5 and seven centimeters at the lip. 2.5s are very small and don't really ventilate well. So you're looking at a really small baby when you're using those. So really the rule is one, two, above two, 2.5, three, 3.5, seven, eight, nine, right? So if you're going to remember anything, 3.5, nine centimeters at the lip. Okay. And if it looks prem, mm, three and eight. Yeah. Another one I came across, which I find quite easy to remember, is that, you know, obviously about 3.5 for a term baby. But other than that, the size of the tube is the gestation in weeks rounded down. So if it's a 27-weeker, you might use a 2.5 tube or a 32-weeker, you'd use a three tube. And then inserted 
six plus the weight. Are you happy with those sort of? Yes, comments? yes. But I never remember myself. I al- I always forget those kind of formulas when I'm nervous. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Well, there's two two options for people there. That which yeah, is there you go. So, excellent. Now, in this covering, if you are intubating to check your position, babies are very, 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 very easy to go down the right stem bronchus. So really, really auscultating both sides, looking for good rise and fall. And you need, the most important thing is go for gold. You need your ET2 CO2 detector. And usually, so they're usually purple in babies and they turn yellow. So purple to yellow, purple to yellow, G for gold. Now, if a baby's been recessed, give it a bit of time because sometimes it takes a bit of time. So if you see all the other signs like misting in the tube, good air entry bilaterally, but your your CO2 detector is not changing colors, don't do not yank out the tube. <laughs> just either change your CO2 detector or maybe it's wet or um, just give it a bit of time because if they've been had a low, like a heart rate below 60 for a period of time, they may not have manifested enough CO2 to actually change the, the CO2 detector. Oh, that's very good to know. And you'd routinely, once you're happy with the position of the tube and it's, you know, good gold, you'd pop a oro or nasogastric tube down just to deflate the stomach at that stage, would you? Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, great. Now, in this hypothetical case, despite all the above measures, the heart rate is at this stage below 60 which is the trigger to start compressions and also increase our FiO2 to 100%. So what do you think is the best technique for delivering compressions in a newborn? So before we do that, I cannot stress enough, we need to ensure ventilation is adequate. So if you're still at the R of Mr. Sopa and that you detect the heart rate under 60, do not start chest compressions until you've ensured that you're doing everything possible to ventilate the baby properly. So make sure you've got good air entry bilaterally, you're, you know, you've got good pressures, you're, you've got a good seal, everything else is okay. Because sometimes if you start chest compressions and you haven't identified those things, things are not going to change. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So the ventilation is very, 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 I can't stress enough how important it is. But we've done all those things. We've got an ET tube in, air entry bilaterally. And the kid is still not pinking up, heart rate still 60. This is a very stressful time. So the most important thing is to remember, keep breathing. And this is when you need to really delineate role. Thinking about someone getting a UV line. So if you do have team members around, thinking about, you know, down the track, if things don't turn around, we will need to give adrenaline. So getting someone to go off and get that sorted. But if you have enough people, otherwise you'll have one person on airway and one person on chest compressions. And so now we're going to start with compression. So it is three to one. And what you get, so the person doing the compressions would be counting it out loud or if whatever the team wants, or if the person doing breasts wants to count out loud, that's fine as well, but make sure someone is counting out loud and that someone is watching the clock. So we're doing one, two, three, breathe, one, two, three, breathe, one, two, three, breathe. And that's, so that's one, the one, two, threes are the compressions. And the breathe is the person giving a breath. As Louise mentioned, this is when you crank it up to 100%. And the method of delivering the chest compressions are you, there are two methods. One is the two finger technique where your index finger and your middle finger are placed on the lower third of the sternum. And you're delivering a compression that is a third of the depth and allowing time for recoil of the chest so the heart can fill with blood. The other technique, which 
is one that I prefer is the thumb technique, which you're placing your thumbs in the same position that you would place your fingers, but your thumbs are, your, your hands are kind of straddling the baby. Again, a YouTube video would be ideal <laughs> to do this, but so take a couple of looks, but the thumb technique is a bit easier. And in all techniques, just as an adult, it's a lot easier if you position your body over the baby and then you have less effort for that and keeping an eye on the time. And of course, if you can, having people get, uh, you know, your adrenaline and UVC line ready. Okay. Now that's great. And in terms of inserting an umbilical vein catheter, mm-hmm. would you mind just briefly going through the steps of, of that? Look, in this kind of situation, the one thing I would say is yes, sterile technique is important but it is not everything. This is a life-saving measure. So it's, this is not like a permanent line. This is a line that you're going to insert just to give drugs. And once the resuscitation is complete, gets removed and a proper one gets put in. So this is an emergency situation. You try to be as sterile as possible. You clean. So the first step would be to, number one, let everyone know that it's about to happen. The person will clean the area with chlorhexidine. And then you have a, uh, a little tie that you'll tie at the base okay, of base of the umbilicus, so over the skin. Now, you don't want to tie it too tight because if you tie it too tight, then you won't be able to pass your UVC line. But if you tie it too loose, then it will bleed when you (laughs) take your clamp off. So you do your tie and then make sure your line is prepped. So you'll flush it with, well, in this case, probably just normal saline. And it's usually a three French catheter uh, that you'll use. And then what you'll do is you'll have hopefully someone else hold up the uh, clip And whether, you know, there's a couple of different techniques, you just go with what you have at the time. Some people will use a blade and and cut across. Some people who are less familiar with using the blade find it easier to use scissors, like very sharp scissors, and just go snip right across and then get a nice even cut. But whatever it is, usually with the UVC kits, you get blades. Be careful, they're extremely sharp. And so whatever incision you do, make sure it's Try to. This is a very important part because the incision will determine the ease of inserting the line. So a nice clean incision as horizontal as you can. What I like to do is to use a clamp and I put it to where I think the the vein is. Usually the vein is where most of the blood is coming out. And I will hold it just so that I hold it just on that side and do a little turn of my wrist. So there's a bit of a a lip and it's kind of curving the edge of the skin open a bit and that opens the vein up. Again, watch lots of videos. (laughs) Usually with the vein, I find you don't need a dilator. I find the dilators are usually more useful for the arteries and sometimes a dilator can create a false path. So, but every umbilicus is different. So always look at your vein. If you cannot pass your, try to get rid of any kind of clot that might be there, but this is usually fresh, so it's okay. Some people like to have a clamp on the UVC when they're putting it in. Other people like to use their hands whatever feels more natural to you, but have a good hold on your clamp that's holding your umbilicus, keep it nice and steady, and then push your UVC line through. If you meet with resistance, try to gauge, do you think it's around where your tie is? If it is, try to push through. If you think it's a bit higher up than that, and you may you may be in a false track, just re- retry. Twisting it often will help, and aiming aiming towards yourself often helps as well. So instead of aiming up towards the baby, aiming a little bit towards yourself or the bottom half of the baby can help sometimes. And a nice twist, always twisting it down as it goes forward. Once you're in, and then once you think you've gone about two to three centimeters past the umbilicus, 
then you can check. Usually that's about the four centimeter long mark, depending on how big your umbilicus is. Always kind of gauging. Check if you've got blood return. If you have blood return, awesome. You're in. That's all you need. You do not need to keep going until you reach that measurement of where the SVC is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, or the IVC, whatever. You just want to be in that little bit amount and then you can start pushing your drugs. Oh, no, that's great. And so at this stage, we've got, you know, the CPR going with three to one compressions to ventilation, which means probably a a compression rate of about 120. So you end up, I think, with 90 compressions and 30 breaths in the minute. That's about right. FiO2 up to 100%. We've now got intravenous access. So we want to be giving some adrenaline. So what dose should we give there, Catherine? Yeah. So you're doing about Look, you can do point. They, the dose range is 0.1 to 0.3 mils per kilo of one in 10,000. I always just go with 0.1. I find that just so much easier. The math is easier. I like to keep it nice and simple. It's the same as older kids. So 0.1 mils per kilo. And I get at this point, you're probably guessing the baby's weight. So if you're more, so you would have to just kind of guess what the weight is of the baby. If you're just want something nice and simple, if you're thinking it's a term baby, 38 weeks and above, give 0.5. If you think it's late prem or, or prem below 37 weeks, give 0.25. And if it's a really small, give 0.1 mils. And that's on your uh, algorithm. I will tend to have a look at the baby, guess the weight and do it by that. But either way is probably just as effective. Yes, I think, yeah, right. The, the doses on the chart are quite yeah. helpful, I think, in that sort of scenario as well. So the flowchart then also says to consider giving some volume expansion. What would you be giving there? Look, I think we have to make sure that you do consider. I would do your adrenaline and then do a round of your resuscitation and then measure the effectiveness of it. If you're not getting effective pulses and you suspect that there is some hypovolemia, at that point we could give resuscitation. So the other thing I would want to say also is just while we're talking about the adrenaline is you can give ET to vent uh, adrenaline, but it is definitely nowhere near as effective as IV and is slowly going out. But you, if you give ET, ET, it's 0.5 to one mil per kilo per dose. So I just want to say that you can still give it, but it's generally not, it's definitely nowhere near as effective and not as good. So Fluid resuscitation. In babies who you suspect may be hypovolemic from blood loss, so if there is a history of placenta previa or abruption um, or lots of blood loss from the umbilical cord, then at that point, the ideal solution would be O negative blood. So CMV negative if possible. This would be the best. So anticipating that if you if the mom comes in with lots of PV bleeding prior to delivery, anticipating, okay, we may need some O negative blood. Otherwise, other acceptable solutions would be normal saline. And you can give lactate ringers and heart or heartmans if that's all you have. The dose is 10 mils per kilo. And sorry, I forgot to give you the dose. (laughs) And what I would say is really like signs of hypovolemia would be pale, delayed capillary refill, weak pulses, persistently low heart rate despite effective ventilation. Okay. Yeah, no, that, that's excellent. And then I think the other thing that we would then also just need to be thinking about is any 
dextrose as well, the sugar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, so if you're still resussing, obviously we're going to think about our five H's and five T's. <laughs> and oh, oh, and just for the fluid, the rate of administration is generally about five or ten minutes. Okay. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I forgot to mention that. So look, we're ventilating at 100% because that'll be addressing our hypoxia, hypovolemia. We've given blood or normal saline at 10 mils per kilo. We're thinking, look, there had been, people had done bicarb stuff in the past, but at this point it's really reserved for neonatal intensive care units. And I wouldn't be throwing bicarb at the baby unless nets or, and by this time, of course, we've called for help. Yeah. Right. We've definitely called for help a long time ago. And hypoglycemia is unlikely to cause an arrest. But it is important to monitor closely in the post-resuscitative care or prolonged resuscitation. So if we're at this point, I don't think there is a harm in checking a glucose and delivering some dextrose or empirically giving, you know, two mils per kilo of D10 or dextrose 10%. The other things to think about at this point, if we're still resuscitation, obviously is attention pneumothorics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one, if you don't have a, a transilluminator in your department, a really good technique is a flashlight on your phone. They're nice and slender and the phones are. (laughs) And and if you just put it in a Ziploc bag, put your flashlight on and pop it underneath the baby, that will show any tension anymore. And the other thing, of course, is toxins. So depression from a maternal medication. So if mom, it's no longer considered part of resuscitation. However, if mom had been given a big dose of morphine prior to delivery and she's opioid naive, then the naloxone could be considered. Obviously, in this baby, it's unlikely to be that. But in babies who may or may not have gone this far down, but still having respiratory issues, it is, you know, you can consider once you've established effective ventilation and they're not responding to naloxone. I was, I once came in late to a recess or a baby who was still on CPAP and Nets was coming to retrieve. And someone said, Did mom have morphine before delivery? And someone went, yeah. And the other person, the pediatrician went, what? And they gave him a lockdown and the baby was fine. Okay. <laughs> so it is important to consider, like unlikely to cause cardiac depression, but if uh, just ask, because sometimes people forget to say. Yeah. And then obviously if we've gone this far, then it's kind of, you kind of do want to think about your weird and wonderful things. Is there a scaphoid chest? Are there asymmetric breast sounds? Could this be an undiagnosed congenital diaphragmatic hernia? You know, a chest X-ray wouldn't be unwarranted at this point in time. Could it be a cardiac ideology if the baby's still bradycardiac and and cyanotic despite good ventilation? Is there a mechanical blockage of the airway, some kind of weird and wonderful atresia or web or et cetera? If you've intubated, you've bypassed any type of coanal atresia, but that is important to think about in the beginning of someone who's not really doing well. And so just thinking about those things once you've gotten to the kind of but by that time, you'll have Nets or Piper or whoever your transport team is talking yeah. to you. But those are things to think about. Mm. And just getting back to the tension pneumothorax. So yes. with the light, it would would transilluminate on the side mm. of the tension. And then what a, a butterfly in the second intercostal mm. space, midclavicular line with a with a syringe to aspirate. Yes. Is that your initial steps? Yes, with a three-way tap and a syringe, if you have. Um, and those would be the initial steps. Definitely. You should like, people always say, how much should I take out? You know? And it's that, that's the hardest question, you know, like how much air to take out. I find that very, very difficult to answer because, and I would always just go clinically. If you see improvement, then that's probably enough. (laughs) 
you probably need at least 10 mils to take out to see anything if it's a significant tension pneumothorax. But, you know, it's always that kind of fine line, like between like the lungs re-expanding and you don't want to poke it with the needle. But definitely if you see improvement, take your needle out, put your thing back on and don't leave the needle in and then think about putting a chest drain in. Okay. Yeah. Look, sometimes you get away with a needle decompression without putting a chest tube in, but that would just be to follow the, the, the progress of the baby. And of course you can do multiple needle decompression. <laughs> Okay. Oh, no, that's great to know. Just one other question I was wanting to clarify, if you don't mind. In the case of a a heart rate below 60, where we're, you know, intubating and giving an FiO2 of 100%, but if we're back to our Mr. Soper and we weren't adequately ventilating with the TPs and we ended up intubating them, but their heart rate is still in that 60 to 100 range. What FiO2 do you give, you know, with the ET tube? Does that change it in terms of? Look, that's a really good question, Louise. Um, I think if we've had to intubate a baby, we're not giving chest compressions, but the heart rate's still between 60 and 100. You may be dealing with the arrhythmia. We would definitely need to make sure that we are effectively ventilating with our intubation, making sure we're in the right spot, making sure there's no tension pneumothorax. I think ruling out all those other things, if our SATs are 100%, you know, I think that's when you titrate to your peripheral saturation. I would probably at that point get a four limb SAT, you know, making sure our SATs on our right side and our left side are within normal limits on both sides are equal at least and not don't have a 10% or more differential because then we'd be thinking, oh, this is a cardiac lesion, right. you know? And um, so, yeah, so I would, I think you really important to have your saturations on. The saturations are 95%. Yeah, I think it wouldn't be harmful to and to to give increased FiO2 a little bit of increased FiO2 but thinking that oxygen is a medicine so we need to use it conservatively so titrating to our FiO2 on our SATs are would be what I would recommend oh no that's that's a great guide there that's excellent so so I think it's obviously a very challenging situation you know to be in do you have any other comments or advice you know regarding you know newborn resuscitation I think the most important thing is being familiar with your equipment. And if you're in the capacity to run simulation programs prior, you know, even if just as a team, you get together and say, let's pretend a baby came in and go through those steps. I think preparation is key. The more you prepare, the calmer you'll be and and the better things will work. And, And so I would say the key is preparation. And if you can run simulations, even though it's hard to get everyone together, if you can do those kind of things before a recess does arrive, I think that just streamlines things, makes everyone more cohesive and the team works as a team. So if you can do simulations, I would really, 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 really emphasize to do that. And if you can be familiar with your equipment, it's the most important thing. You know, we all talk about the really stressful recesses where it goes all the way to intubation, chest compressions, et cetera. And they do happen. But the majority, if you get those initial steps right, will prevent that from happening. And if everyone's on the same page and understands your nails, understands the ventilation, understands what we need to happen, then I think that's probably the most important thing to do is to prepare. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's excellent. And I think, you know, I think the simulations are really important. But And I also think on an individual level, 
um, it's actually worthwhile. Like I always try and just mentally go through the algorithm in my head frequently, just so that when the time comes, I've done it so many times that you have it there as a prompt, I think is very good, but just to sort of know the steps and be familiar with it, I think is, is very helpful as well. So no, that's excellent. And I guess the one thing we didn't really talk about because it's so rare, but does happen is the cardiac baby. So the cardiac baby who is breathing and looks fine, but is blue, <laughs> be wary. They it, always think about your, the, the one is, um, is, is to think about treating with prostin. So, but that again is a end stage and by, you can you always have time for help, but to think about prostin in babies. Absolutely. No, that's fantastic. Um, yeah. Well, thank you for going through that with us today, Catherine, and your insights and additional sort of advice about the practicalities of of doing a newborn resuscitation i'm very grateful for your your wisdom and and the time you've taken to do this today so thanks very much no problem louise any time for you thanks so much all right all the best cat bye for now bye 